Turn our Bibles to the book of First Peter, chapter one. First Peter, chapter one. We'll read from the first verse down through verse. No, that's not even right. We're going to read from verse thirteen down through verse twenty-one. Verse thirteen down through twenty-one. Please follow along in your Bible as I read. Hear now the word of the living God. Therefore, prepare your minds for actions. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in ignorance. But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves in all your behavior. Because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. If you address as father the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth, knowing that you are not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers. But with precious blood, as of a lamb, unblemished, spotless, the blood of Christ. For he was foreknown before the foundations of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Let's pray. Great triune God of heaven, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we come in need asking your blessing. God, I ask that you would bless your word as it is preached. Feel especially inadequate and unworthy this morning to proclaim these truths. So I pray, Lord, that you would, as we often say, that you would hide me behind the cross of Calvary. And that as your word goes out to touch the, the physical ears, that your Holy Spirit would minister to us. And we would hear the voice of Christ in the preaching of the word. God, I pray for those who are here. Who address you as father. I pray that you would sanctify us by your truth. Your word. God, I pray for those who are here. Who do not know you as father. You are their creator. You own them by that token. If they don't know you as Father, God, I pray that you would pour out your grace on them. You would give them spiritual life. Give them <coughs> true repentance for their sin and faith in Jesus. 
God, as we as we hear your word preached, make us good soil that the seed of the gospel might grow in us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We've been working through this first chapter of 1 Peter under the larger heading of salvation. Uh, Peter, thus far, is all about salvation. And, and last time we saw that we can subdivide this salvation section in two pieces. And we said that down through verse 12, we will call salvation's confidence. Salvation's confidence. And then verse 13 through verse 10 of chapter 2, we're calling salvation's consequence. Through verse 12, salvation's confidence is found in the delineation of so much blessing that we have in Christ Jesus. We see in these verses, and we, we didn't even read them this morning, but we remember from our study, we see here the electing grace of God who has caused us to be born again. So we see in that God causing us to be born again, his sovereignty in salvation. By the grace of adoption, we are heirs with Christ to this great inheritance that is mentioned here. And we see that God protects and preserves his children. What great blessings we have. What great confidence we can have in the salvation that is given us through Jesus Christ. And then we began last week in verse 13. We began to look at salvation's consequences. The result of that salvation laid out. The, the salvation laid out in the previous verses. If you remember I asked the question. So Jesus saves now what? And we see salvation's consequences. And those consequences, as we began to consider last week, and you can track through them from verse 13, the consequences are that we prepare our minds for action, that we keep sober in spirit, that we fix our hope completely on the grace of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, that we are not conformed to the former lusts, you see, this is the job of the preacher. You thought this was hard, but really we're just trying to say what the Bible says. So you should be able to track right down through there and see. Verse 15, we have this one. Like the Holy One who called you, be yourselves holy in all your behavior. These are consequences of this salvation that we have in Christ. And then in verse 16, and we touched on this last week, in verse 16, we found a motivation for holy living. We're commanded in 15, be holy yourselves in all your behavior. But verse 16, be holy for I am holy. And that word for, for I am holy, gives us a motivation for holy living. And we said last time, we here find the aim for every Christian. That is to resemble God in holiness and purity. I think about how many. <laughs> I think about how many times, and I'm just thinking about our, our babies right now, especially thinking about my grandbabies, and how many times just yesterday we looked through uh, baby books. 
And we said, boy, that looks like, that looks like that boy. He looks like his daddy. I remember a friend when I, I saw his son walking across the yard while we were talking. I was like, look at the way he walks, his gait, the way he carries himself. He looks like his dad. Christians, we are to look like our heavenly father. The way you walk, the way you talk, the way you live should resemble your heavenly father in holiness and in purity. And then what follows in our text for today, verses 17 through 21, that we're not going to get through all of that, do we find here further motivation for holy living? And I've titled the message today, Motivations for Holy Living. Uh, and we're going to try to address two today. We're going to try. The first one we see here, God your Father is an impartial judge. That is a motivation for holy living. God, your father is an impartial judge. And then we say you were purchased. You were redeemed. You were bought with a price. So we have these to consider as we consider the first motivation this morning from verse 17. If you address the uh, as father, the one who impartially judges each one according to work, uh, his own work. Conduct yourselves in the fear of the Lord during the time of your stay on earth. Now, I got to I'm so there's no way we have enough time to unpack everything in this. And it is so disappointing to me. But, but I hope that you'll be able to see here. Let's look firstly at the familial language used in this section of scripture. The familial language. If you address as father, who is the father? God is the father and here God is referred to as father. This family familiarity is found here, but not only in this sentence, look back where we've already been into verse 14 and see there as obedient children. So God is father. Those who believe in Jesus Christ and are, and are his children through Christ's blood, we are children as obedient children, do not be conformed to those former lusts. We are children. God is Father. Then, we haven't gotten there yet, but look down in verse 22. Verse 22. Since you have, in obedience to the truth, purified your soul for a sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another from the heart. Love of the brethren. So God is the Father. We believers are His children. And then, we fellow Christians our brethren. Uh, somebody said something this week about how weird it is that Christians refer to one another as brother. But we are brethren. It is the truth. We must, as we analyze this text, as we understand this text, we must understand the familial context and we must read the text in this context. If we miss the family familiarity that is here, we will greatly misunderstand the motivations for holy living. For every believer in Jesus Christ, God is our Father. Now, I did not say for every person on the earth, God is your Father. That's the popular message of the day. 
But that is not the message of the Bible. That is not what God says. Jesus addressed some folks and said, you are like your father, the devil. God is not father to everyone. He is creator, but this familial relationship, this fatherly relationship is for those who are believers in Jesus Christ. We have a heavenly father. And we see a descriptor here for our heavenly father, the one who judges. Maybe that's not what you were hoping for. <laughs> Maybe that's not what you wanted to hear. Maybe that's not what you wanted to read. But we have this descriptor here. God is the one who judges. God is the righteous judge. It's not just here. We find this throughout scripture. Psalm 50 calls God himself a judge. Isaiah 33 tells us that the Lord is judge, lawgiver, and king. And in the New Testament, we find Timothy, Hebrews, James, all speaking of God as righteous judge. The, the references to God as judge or God's judgment are so many that there's no way we could go through all of them. There's just no way. But God is judge. The judge. We have another descriptor, an adverb describing God's, God's judgeship. God being the judge is a descriptor of who God our Father is, but we have a, a descriptor of that descriptor. God who impartially judges. He is an impartial judge. God impartially judges. Now, there's so much misunderstanding on the impartialness of God. That's probably a better word. Impartiality. There's, there's misunderstanding. Other verses in the scripture speak of this. God is no respecter of persons. God, God is not one who plays favorites. And some mistakenly, falsely understand this to mean that God treats every person on earth the same. Every man, woman, and child gets exactly the same treatment from God. But this is not how we should understand the impartiality of God. This is not how we should see this. Now we know that the scripture teaches us very clearly that God does not show partiality. We have to understand how we are to hear that, how we are to understand that, that to meaning. Uh, God shows no partiality to a person or to a group of persons based on them, based or reacting on who they are or reacting on what they have done. God is no respecter of persons in that way when it comes to uh, who they are, what they've done based on age, based on race, uh, based on gender. God is no respecter of persons. He is completely impartial when it comes to those things. But that is not to say that God does not show favor to his own children. To his own children, he shows favor. Uh, of All of humanity is not viewed by God the same. There are two groups. Now some of you, you've been dividing humanity into way more groups than that. Biblically, 
From God's perspective, there are two groups. Those who are in Adam, who are lost, deserving hell, and those who are in Christ, who are redeemed, who are saved from sin, saved from hell, who are by the grace of adoption, children of God. That's the two groups. Those are children of God and those who are children of this age, children of this world, children of heaven. All people are not God's children. Favor, God's favor toward his children is clearly seen in scripture. And we've already read in our readings this morning, we've already seen God's favor toward his children. But listen from Proverbs 15. Proverbs 15 says that God is far from the ungodly, but he listens to the prayers of the righteous. We see that in this, there is a preference for his own children. And if you remember Psalm 1, that is very familiar to us. Remember the contrast between the blessed man and the ungodly. Remember, the ungodly are not so. So there is a contrast that is seen between God's children and those who are the ungodly. God favors his children, but God's favor is not based on anything in the man. Boy, wouldn't that puff us up with pride? God favors me. I must be awesome. No, God favors, God favors me because he is great, because he is wonderful, because of who he is. And it is not anything based in the man, in the woman that God shows his favor. He is no respecter of persons like that. He shows his favor out of his mere good pleasure. God is who he is. And the implication here in this text is that these words, these promises, these motivations for holy living are for those who are God's children. If you address God as Father, this is for you. And beloved Christians, we have, we have some other descriptors here. <coughs> We have some other descriptors that we need to look at. The children of God. Our father is a judge. Our father is a judge and we know that God judges all, but we must not take our salvation and take the grace that has been given us by God and take it as a license to sin. God judges. God is a judge. If we, if we speak of God and we say that he overlooks sin or we say that he tolerates sin, we blaspheme. If we say we know him, but we don't keep his commandments, the Bible addresses that. Do you know what it says? It says we're liars. God hates sin. The Bible doesn't just tell us. We, we grow up with that, that saying, God hates the sin, but he loves the sinner. That's not what the Bible says. The, God, the Bible says God hates the workers of iniquity. God hates the workers of iniquity. Psalm 5. God hates sin. God hates the workers of iniquity. And God judges sin. 
The text tells us God judges each, each according to his work. Each according to his work. Now we have here in the text somewhat of a play on words. God judges according to each one's work. And work here means behavior or conduct. God judges according to our conduct. And then you look at the very next statement and we see conduct yourselves. God judges according to our conduct. Now conduct yourself. So we see this play on word. These verses are addressing our behavior. These verses are addressing the behavior of Christians. The behavior of the children of God. And God judges each one according to his work. In the new covenant, there is no longer consequence for sin passed down from generation to generation. It says here that God judges each one, each individual, each person, each of his children, according to that person's work. There was a time in the old covenant where, where there was sin passed from generation to generation and the sons and daughters would pay for the sins of the fathers. But there comes a time that we read in the old covenant announcing the new. No longer will the fathers eat sour grapes and the children's teeth be set on edge. So there's not a consequence. There is, there is each one being judged according to his own work. We take responsibility for our own sin. And what that means is we can't blame anyone else. Even if some psychologist tells you it's all your mama's fault or all your daddy's fault or all somebody else's fault, you have to own your own sin. This is addressed to Christians. This is you being judged for your own work. So since God is an impartial judge who judges each one according to his own work, <laughs> conduct yourself in fear during your stay on earth. Conduct yourself in fear. And I want to tell you, this statement, conduct yourself in fear during your stay on earth, I, I wanted to make this into a sermon series. And maybe I should have. Because there's so much to unpack here. Uh, let me just tell you a, a little, little foreshadowing because I don't think I'll get to it. Uh, when we go out of town on vacation or you go out of town for work and you stay in a hotel, what do they say? Enjoy your stay. When you think of your stay, what is that? That's a place you are temporarily. Your, your stay is not where you live. It's not where you dwell. It's not home. But here we read about our stay on earth. Christians, you need to think we're, we're just in the hotel. We're just temporarily in this place. This is not home. This is not the boy. There are comforts. There's some good things, but this is not home. We are in this strange, this strange circumstance where we are Christians. We are members of two different kingdoms at one time. We're here. And if you look at my driver's license, it says Texas. And we're, we're 
citizens of the United States of America and glad to be. We're here and we're part and we take part. We have jobs, we go to work, we 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 participate in what goes on around us. If you haven't already, this coming Tuesday, you will participate in what's going on in this kingdom. In this right now kingdom. And that's what we do. We live in this kingdom and we have membership and, and a, to a certain degree ownership in this kingdom. But this is not home. We're just here on a stay. This is just a little while. Home is what Peter was talking about at the beginning when he says you are resident aliens. Home is in heaven. And that is our permanent home. That is the later place that we will be. And it is the forever place that we will be. And it is the place that should take precedence over this place. When we have to make decisions. Now, now we are involved and participate in this kingdom. But when, when we have to make a decision about which kingdom we are faithful to. Which kingdom we are loyal to. It, Christians, it better not be this one. It better not be the here and now. This is all going to burn up. So we should get back to the sermon. That's just from, from your stay on earth. That's, I've been rushing to get here. We must conduct ourselves with fear. So I want to spend just some time talking about fear. We conduct ourselves in fear. But Christians, as we read this, as we read that we are to conduct ourselves in fear, we cannot forget the familial context, the family familiarity in this text. We cannot forget that because we will misunderstand fear. We'll misunderstand the fear of God. There are two ways that I've noted here that we can misunderstand the fear of God. And we see this. I, I think when we understand the fear of God, these are the two misunderstandings we see most of all. The first way to misunderstand the fear of God is to say, well, when the Bible says we fear God, it just means respect. It just means that we honor and respect him. And listen, it's a good lie. And I, what I mean by it, it's a good lie is there's a kernel of truth and every good lie has a kernel of truth. Every good lie has something. You wouldn't believe an all-out lie, but you believe a lie like that. Well, well, we should just respect God. Should we respect God? Absolutely. But is that the, the sum total of the fear of God? I don't think so. This is a very popular idea, though, in a world that is uncomfortable with God having wrath and vengeance and anger. So they want to take the word fear out, exchange it for a, can, can I change that word for a better word? One that I like better. So we change it for respect. I'd like for us to hear from Matthew's gospel about the fear of God, about fearing God. And listen and see if you think, hey, that means respect. Listen, it says, do not fear those who can kill the body, but are unable to kill the soul. Don't fear them. But rather, fear him who is able to destroy both body and soul in hell. Now, does that sound like polite respect toward our great-grandpa in heaven? This is fear. And there is a fear that is real. We must understand that the fear of God 
is more than just respect. There is a fear. So the first way that we misunderstand fear is to say, well, it only means respect. Now, the second way we can misunderstand fear, and, and to be honest, this is, this is kind of the world that, that I'm from, and maybe many of you. This is for, for Christians. We misunderstand the fear of God if we think the fear of God means terror over his wrath. We miss Christians. This is just for you. We misunderstand the fear of God when we think the fear of God means terror over God's wrath. To be very clear, every person who is without God in this world, not forgiven of sin, not redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ, you should fear God. You should tremble in terror because of his wrath. You should shudder to think that there is a judgment day coming. You should fear in that way. But if you address as father the one who judges. That's the big if of this, of this text. If you address as father. If God is your father. If you are his, you do live. This is written for Christians. Conduct yourself in fear. So you do live in fear. But that fear must be very different from the fear that the world has toward God. Right now, let me just chase a tiny rabbit. Somebody's thinking, well, the world doesn't fear God. They will. They will. Right now, what you see is smart aleck people bowing up their chest. Some saying there is no God and others saying they don't care. There will be a day. Every knee will bow in fear. But we don't fear, Christians, we don't fear that way. It says conduct yourselves in fear. Remember, during your stay on earth, this is just temporary. One day we're going to be with him. This is temporary. This world is passing away. So living in fear, we don't live, we won't live in fear in the eternal state. See, conduct yourselves in fear during your stay on earth. In the eternal state, we will no longer live in this kind of fear. While we're on earth, we live in the fear of God. We see here that we are to fear as children. Remember the familial context. We are to fear as children, not as enemies of God. Those without Christ are enemies of God. Jesus said, if you're not for me, you're against me. They fear as enemies. We fear as children. And, and that's very different. I think about the fear that a child should have for a loving father. There should be a level of fear. God is the kind of father who, who sparks fear in his children. It's, it's a fear that we should model as parents. We should model as fathers. Our, our children should know without question that we love them. And they should know without question that we will discipline and correct them when they do wrong. They should know that. So, so fathers, listen. Listen. It is the height of laziness 
and worthlessness as a father, you should be ashamed if you will not instill healthy love and healthy fear in your children. It, it, it makes it more difficult for them to love and fear the God of heaven if you haven't modeled it and taught it from a very young age. Now, now, in speaking of this, I'm speaking of love and fear and fear and love and love and fear, and these things are so closely related. For a child to fear his father, rightly, I'm talking about a good, uh, can I pause here again? I gotta say this. I come from a, I come from a really good home. My parents are here today. I don't say that when y'all aren't here. I'm just saying it because y'all are here. That's, that's, not, that's not true. I come from a good home, but I recognize, I, I recognize that my home and my family is not perfect. And I'm married to someone who came from a different home with a very different background. And I recognize that each and every one of us, we have different experiences. And when I think father, I, I think about that man. And I was looking at my brother as you were reading scripture. I was thinking about you and your father. I know that so many of us, and, and uh, my brother, I want to say this before I go on. My brother had a good father who loved him, right? Amen. But some of us don't know the love of an earthly father. Some of us have fathers who are, who are bad fathers, bad models. And when we see the scripture refer to God as father, it may be a little more difficult to, to muster up how to think about that. Uh, I, I've described this as we look at the, the kings of the Old Testament. When they had a good king, it was to remind them how good God is as king. And when they had a bad king, it was to remind them how good God is as a king. When we have a good father, it should remind us our heavenly father is a perfect father. A perfect father. And when we have a bad father, it should remind us he is the father to the fatherless and he is the perfect father. So as we speak of this, I just want to, I want to point out, this may not be reflective of your earthly experience with your father, but we're talking about our heavenly father. A child with a perfect father should love and fear him. I'm going to give you some time to turn in your hymnal to page number 681. And I'm not talking about hymn 681. That's the big letters at the top of the pages. But if you go all the way to the back, there's tiny little, that would seem tiny to me, tiny little page numbers at the bottom. And it's 681. Our confession is printed in the hymnal. And on 681, we have chapter 21 uh, of our confession. And it's titled Christian Liberty and Liberty of Conscience. And I just want to read uh, the first part here from this first paragraph. The liberty which Christ hath purchased for believers under the gospel consists in their freedom from the guilt of sin, the condemning wrath of God, the rigor and curse of the law, and their being delivered from this present evil world, bondage to Satan and dominion of sin, from the evil of afflictions, the fear of the sting of death, the victory of the grave, and everlasting damnation. Wow, that's our freedom in Christ. As 
also in their free access to God, watch this, and their yielding obedience unto him, not out of slavish fear, but a childlike love and willing mind. See the contrast here, slavish fear and childlike love, fear and love still closely related. Slavish fear is the terror that every lost person should have about the wrath of God. But children of God don't have a slavish fear. Children of God have a childlike love and a willing mind. And this is all wrapped up and around in, in how we fear God. So the instruction here to conduct yourself in fear for the believer is this kind of fear. It is a childlike love and a willing mind, uh, not slavish fear or what Jonathan Edward called a, a servile fear. This fear of God. Uh, let me say it the, the inverse. Slavish fear, servile fear is fear of God absent from his assurance and his love. Absence from his grace and from his care. That is the slavish fear. So how do we fear God? Well, we fear God the way I feared my father. I, I had a fear of my father until I was probably 30. <laughs> it lasts, right? It lasts a long time. A fear of my father as a child was there, but I never doubted his love and care. You see that? that? Those things can go together. You never doubt the love and care. You only fear in that relationship when you're disobedient, when you're rebellious. That's when the fear comes in. Christians, you need not fear the wrath of God. The full wrath of God for all your sins was poured out on Jesus Christ on Calvary. If Jesus died for you on the full on the cruel cross of Calvary, then the fullness of God's wrath for you is exhausted. It's done. Christ drank the cup of God's wrath. And what do we say? He drank it down to the dregs. That cup of wrath for the Christian is empty. There's nothing for you to fear, child of God, of the wrath of God. We say that every sin will be punished. Every sin will be punished. For the lost person, they will receive the punishment for their sin in eternal hell. But for the child of God, Jesus took the full punishment for your sin. There is now, therefore, no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. How shameful, how shameful it is for a preacher to preach and preach that there is no wrath in God. Peace, peace. When there is no peace. How shameful and awful. But how shameful and awful. Is it any better at all. For a preacher to preach to the children of God. That you should fear his wrath. His wrath was poured out on Jesus. We need to hear that God's wrath is just and impartial. And it will be meted out to the full measure of all those who are not in Christ. But for those for whom Christ died, there is no longer any terror. 
no longer in the tents. We are no longer under the curse and rigor of the law. We are recipients of His grace, and through adoption, we are His children. Forgiven, made free. And if the Son makes you free, you are free indeed. Now, we've spent some time here, and I've gotten quite excited about the wrath of God being fully satisfied in Christ. If you want to wait for me to not be excited about that, it's going to be a lot. That, that, is, that is the message of the gospel, right? That is, that is the gospel. The wrath of God satisfied in Christ and there's forgiveness of sin. But I don't want us to forget as we're excited about the, the wrath of God being satisfied by Christ. I don't want us to forget that our text tells us here as obedient children, we are to conduct ourselves in fear during our time on earth. We're, we're not going to have time to get to it. But we have to, over the next what we've got to wrestle with this. What does this fear look like? How are we to live in fear without living in the terror of God's wrath? How do we do that? <coughs> this Christian fear must be a fear accompanied by love in light of the love and care of our heavenly Father. And this is our first motivation for holy living, that God, our Father, is judge. And as His children, we fear Him. If you address as Father the one who impartially judges according each one to his own work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth. There's another motivation that I talked about at the beginning. We're not going to get to it today because I want to give it its full attention. But I want to give us just a taste. You Christians, you were redeemed with precious blood, the blood of Christ. This is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. 